I'm, I'm sharing a class I've actually never taught before. It's a, a new new one for me uh, to help um, get a little handle on the liturgy. I spent a lot of time in synagogue, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So what I want to do is everybody grab a machzor. The first thing they need to know is what's the Hebrew word for the prayer book for the high holidays? It's not just called a prayer book, it's called a machzor. And, welcome, nice to have you. Just tell everyone who you are and where you're from. (laughs) Marcel's been here many times before, but she just came in, so we just want to welcome. Pleasure. Thank you for coming, Marcel. So, um, the High Holidays... First of all, why do we call it the High Holidays? What, what, you know, and, and I want to just get this straight before we, we, we jump into the prayer book. Um, what are the three categories of holidays that exist in Judaism? Because we kind of throw that term around and there's a lot of confusion. I, I, I put them in three categories. When we say the Jewish holidays, what are the three categories? Let's see if you can figure one out. So then there's the biblical, we'll call them the festivals. The Chagim, or really they're called Shalosh Regalim. This is good to know. And that's not Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, so maybe you don't need to know it. You came in for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, okay? Why do we call it the Shalosh Regalim, Pesach, Sukkot, and Shavuot? Because they are, they involve your Regalim, your feet. Shalosh means three, Regalim is the three, is the three times that your feet are involved because they're required to do what on those three festivals? Henry, do you know? No. How do you use your feet on, on Sukkot? Pesach and Shavuot. <laughs> um, well, I'm using them. I'm using it very broadly. Where are we supposed to be during those holidays? The Temple Israel. They're pilgrimage holidays, and that's why they say, "Are you making Aliyah Regel? You know that term? If you move to Israel, you're making Aliyah. Guess where it came from? It came from the Shalosh Regalim. It came from the three festivals. When you're going up. Every Jewish family would attempt to go up to Israel, no matter where they lived in the world, um, to where specifically? To Jerusalem, to be in the temple on any of those three festivals. And they're all biblical. They're all mentioned in the Torah, in the five books of Moses. Pesach, celebrating the redemption from Egypt. Sukkot, celebrating the... Sukkot, celebrating... What is that? It's kind of a little more difficult to put your finger on. We're going to have a Sukkot workshop in a couple of weeks after Yom Kippur. Um, what is it? It's really celebrating the booths, the huts that our ancestors lived in while they were in transit from, they were migrants, <laughs> from Egypt to Israel. And it really represents God's protection of the Jewish people from the elements. And we go out and sit in this little, you know, hut kind of situation. Um... What's the third festival? Pesach, Sukkot, and Shavuot, which celebrates the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Okay. That's one category, and they're biblical. There's another category that's also biblical, which is Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And they're really referred to as what? How do we call, what do we call Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? What do we call them? the high holidays. In Hebrew, it's called the Yamim Noraim, the days of awe. And, um... They're also biblical, and we're going to talk about them a little. And then there's two other holidays, the third category, which I call rabbinic. And those are post-biblically ordained holidays called, Barry, do you know what they are? Hanukkah and Purim, very good. Okay. Even though 
does Hanukkah and Purim, they, do they have like a part of the Bible associated with them? Hanukkah, no. Purim, yeah. yes, which is the book of Esther. Okay? But they're not in the five books. They're not in the five books of Moses, and the five books of Moses really establishes something as biblical or not. Okay. So now we're in the Yom Nuraya, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. What is the theme? I was studying with one of my students today on the phone, and he said, Rabbi, I only have 10 minutes left. I got to get off, got to get back to work. What am I supposed to be thinking about in Rosh Hashanah? What is really the theme of Rosh Hashanah? Can anyone answer that? What do you think? As opposed to Yom Kippur. Like, what's the essence of Rosh Hashanah? And we're going to see how it's captured a little in the liturgy, in the prayer book, in the Mahzor. Barry, I can't see you over there. Why don't you come join? I miss you, man. Good to see you. Uh, what, what, what would you say? It's the new year, so like what? What's the, what's the essence of Rosh Hashanah? Like, what are we doing? What's the point? Something to be written into the Book of Life. We want to get written into the Book of Life. Okay, there is a passage in the Talmud that says that there are three books open on Rosh Hashanah. It's going to freak you out a little. The Book of... Um, you know the books? Book of Life. The other book, which will remain nameless. And then the middle. What's the middle? And then there's like the hanging. And uh, the hanging is like you haven't really... You're not sure. God's not sure where to put you. And no, you're just sort of hanging. And then you've got this time period now to get yourself into the good book. And the great Maimonides wrote that every Jew, how should we look at ourselves? That we were put in the bad book or the good book? He says, no. Don't look at yourself that you were put in either of those two books. Look at yourself that you are where? Exactly in the middle and anything can tip the scale. That's a good way of putting a little Jewish pressure, you know, (laughs) on you. That you could, you know... So it is considered a day of judgment, but when you start looking at the prayers, when you think judgment, what are you really thinking? Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? Because what do you do on Yom Kippur that really screams judgment? That doesn't seem to... What's that? You say all the the not so great things you did. You know, we clench our fists and we lightly tap our chest and we bend over and we say, you know, like a little humility and we go, Hashamnu, Agadnu, we go through this whole laundry list of sins. We don't do that on Rosh Hashanah. We do it like crazy on Yom Kippur. We started doing it on Saturday night with Slichot a little, but you don't see any of that on Rosh Hashanah. Now, if Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment, why don't you ask Hashem for forgiveness for your sins? You find me anywhere in this book where you're asking God for forgiveness for your sins. And this is what gets us to the theme, the central theme of Rosh Hashanah. What do you need to do, philosophically, before you can start asking somebody for forgiveness? Even more basic than that. Even more basic than that. I have to know what you're doing wrong. You got to know what's right, what's what's considered right, what's considered wrong. Good. What else do you have to, even more basic than that, but that's, we're starting to get there. Like, who are you talking to? You've got to set up the system. What's the system? I, I know it's going to sound so rudimentary, but if we got the system down, the rabbis think, feel the rest will fall to place. What's the system? The system is there's a God. 
he created the world. In that world, he placed people. He gave people, I don't know, missions and purposes in life to accomplish, to do things. And maybe we fall short of that. If you don't believe in any of that, no offense, but what's the point of showing up on Yom Kippur and going, I'm sorry I did this, I'm sorry I did that. Why do I have to say I'm sorry? Before who? Before God? Who's God? Who am I in relation to Hashem? What we do in the prayer book, basically, is get the facts down. Now, those facts we may take for granted, and not everybody in the world believes in all of those, what we consider facts, but they're fundamental Jewish beliefs. And the rabbis believe, and I really believe this, because in the beginning I was like, I heard this explanation years ago from one of my rabbis, and I thought it was a little lame. And I was like, what do you mean? How come we're not asking for forgiveness? It's a day of judgment. And he said, Mark, if you really believed in God, and you really believed God was all those things we say about him, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, all the omnis. He's all-powerful, he's all-everything. And you really believe, like, he sees everything, he watches everything, he's, like, really in control. And you get that solid in your brain. You won't have to worry so much about all the other stuff that we're begging for forgiveness for. The reason, probably, why we get ourselves into the pickles we're in is because we forget. We forget who we are. We forget what our task is. We forget that there's a God. Or maybe we ignore it a little, or him, or it, whatever it is. And that's what really Rosh Hashanah is. It's like a big reminder of like the most important principles of human existence. And I did, I, and I don't know if any of you guys are doing this incredible 40-day challenge. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, but one, one of the 40-day challenges I asked just a couple of days ago, if anybody remembers, day 26, well, what's the purpose of Rosh Hashanah, I asked. And in there I said, I gave a little, um, oh, it's not it. That's not the one. Now, day 27, I gave the parable of a king who has a son, the prince. The rabbis always like to make up parables with kings and princes. It works well. And the king, the son, the prince, has had enough of the palace. He wants to get out into the real world. And the father's a little nervous, but the king ultimately agrees to let his son go, but he hands him a scroll, reminding the prince of his regal lineage And he asks the son to read the scroll every morning and every evening before he goes to sleep. When you get up, read it. When you go to bed, read it. And the rabbis continue with a metaphor. The prince readily agrees. He goes on his way. He writes letters to his son, eagerly anticipating his son's responses. And then they have a nice correspondence. But then more time gets on, and the son gets busy with other things. And father's letters keep coming in. He, He answers some of them, but not all of them. He reads the scroll in the morning, but he forgets at night. Sometimes he remembers at night, but then he's rushing off to work in the morning. And after a couple of months, he's not reading the scroll anymore, and he's not answering his dad's letters either. So the king sends one of his advisors to find his son, because he's starting to freak out. And he dispatches his top general, someone who had actually raised the prince, And the general traveled amongst the people until he found the prince's modest abode. He knocks on the door and he was aghast to see this disheveled, um, gaunt man standing at the entrance. He was barely recognizable as the prince of this great kingdom. And the general approaches to embrace the prince. 
but the prince pulls back, claiming he didn't know who the general was. He starts denying that he's a prince. And um, it's a little of a sad story, but it's, it's why we need the High Holidays. The High Holidays, Rosh Hashanah specifically, is not there to just get absolution from our sins. We'll get to that. What we first have to establish is the nature of our relationship with Hashem. There's a king, and we, the Jewish people, are supposed to, we're likened to the prince. And we are sent out into this world with a certain mission. And sometimes we're very gung-ho about the mission, and we read that little scroll called the Torah, and we write back to the king, but then often we get distracted by other things, and we don't even remember who we are anymore. We get so sucked into the environment we're living, we don't even remember that we were from this great palace and this great kingdom. And that is one of the purposes, I think, of Rosh Hashanah, just to start out with that. And that's you're going to see a lot in the prayers. Any questions or comments just about this one simple idea that I wanted to start with? The prince, the king. You guys are the prince. It's not to make you feel arrogant or better than anyone else, but we have a certain mission and certain purpose. So let's open up the Machsor, uh, the prayer book. Uh, when does Rosh Hashanah actually start? Uh, do you need? Uh, you know what? Here's an extra one right here. And Josh, if you want to come. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it 10 days between... Ah, so there's 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And by the way, let me just finish uh, my point. Once you get all of these principles and, and, and philosophy down, then you can stand before God and say on Yom Kippur, I'm sorry I didn't do A, B, and C and all that. Because now it makes sense. 10 days includes Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is two days. And then you have a few more days, and it also includes Yom Kippur. So the Aserasi Mechuva, which is the ten days of repentance, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are inclusive of both of the holidays. Okay. What's special about this year's Rosh Hashanah? Shabbat. First night of Shabbos. How does that change anything? We don't blow the shofar. No shofar blowing on Saturday. Somebody once came over to me, and they said, Rabbi, I paid the full price. <laughs> he really thought he was being ripped off. And then I said, well, it's Shabbos, we don't blow the shofar. He goes, that is so lame. Why wouldn't you blow the shofar on Shabbos? So I said, well, Shabbos is really important. We don't want to desecrate. Shabbos you can do any week, Rabbi. We got Shabbos every week. <laughs> now, so I was talking to my wife. Right. I paid for Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah said 100 shofar blasts. Someone is there with a ticker, you know, counting. Um, this really happened. And I was trying to explain. How do you explain to someone why you wouldn't blow the shofar on Shabbos? My wife has been struggling with this for years. And she's like, so she heard something else today. She's always throwing something else out. Like, this is like a theme. Uh, what, what do you think? Why wouldn't you? I mean, yeah, but the Torah, the Torah, the Bible itself calls the day of Rosh Hashanah Yom Trua, a day of shofar blasts. And the concern is, well, what's the reason we don't blow the shofar on, on, on when Shabbos falls out in Rosh Hashanah? Shabbos is special and so why can't I blow the shofar on Shabbos one of the Ten Commandments one of the Ten Commandments but we don't make any more of a big deal of the Ten Commandments and the other 600 things that's for another lecture but but um, so why can't I blow the shofar on Shabbos 
Right. It doesn't have a purpose for Shabbos, and therefore we're actually concerned that what could happen, you could end up carrying the chauffeur to synagogue. So just think about this. What do you see is more important, Shabbos or Rosh Hashanah? Yes. There's only one day of the year that trumps Shabbos. That was not a political statement. One day of the year. Nobody even got that. If Trump becomes president, I can't use that joke anymore? Um, All right, he won't become president. Don't worry. Okay, so what happens? <laughs> One day of the year is when? Why is Yom Kippur holier than Shabbos? Rosh Hashanah isn't. It's called the Shabbos of Shabbos. Yom Kippur is the ultimate Shabbos. And therefore, Trump Shabbos. Rosh Hashanah is not. And this is another very important principle in Jewish tradition. What do we take more seriously in life versus Judaism? That which happens occasionally or that which happens more readily, or more regularly. Usually in life, in our society, in Western society, we make a big deal about the anniversaries, the birthdays. Like, you could be a jerk to your beloved all year, as long as you buy her a nice... No, I'm just kidding. But it's like, we make a big deal about birthdays and anniversaries. Judaism? The only birthday that's mentioned in the Torah is Pharaoh's. And he's not a good dude. I'm not saying you shouldn't celebrate your birthday. But what's more important, your birthday or the next day? Every day is important in life. Okay, and Shabbos, just because Shabbos happens more often doesn't mean it's less important. In fact, the rabbis in the Talmud say, Tadir, v'she'enu tadir, tadir kodem. If you have two things knocking up against each other, two Jewish rituals, and you want to know, and they're both happening at the same time, which one do you do first? You do the one that happens more regularly first. That one is more important. We don't, so this is a very important lesson for life in general. It's much more important to take out the garbage every day than it is to buy that special you know, present. I'm not telling you not to buy the special present on the birthday and get into trouble. You need to buy the special present. But it's more important as far as Jesus is concerned to do the regular every day. Okay, so Shabbos uh, is going to be trumping. And there's another prayer that we're going to be omitting, which is going to be a little of a bummer because we love that prayer. What's a famous high holiday prayer that is omitted on Rosh Hashanah? When Shabbos falls out, who said that? Avinu Malkeinu, very good. Our Father, our King. Which I'm going to talk about it. No, that's the halacha. We don't do it. Oh, are there some synagogues you think that do that? I don't think so. You can check that out. Pretty sure it's across the board. All right, so open up in your prayer books. So when do we start? Um, When do we start? Rosh Hashanah at night. Uh, actually, look look at page 60. What's the first prayer service you're going to be reciting for Rosh Hashanah? It's technically before Rosh Hashanah. What's it called on page 60? Thank you. You can read. Excellent. Mincha. Is it Rosh Hashanah yet when you say Mincha? No, no. no Mincha is, but why, why is this Mincha really important, Mincha, guys? It's the last prayer service of the year. Thank you. By the way, what's the first mitzvah that you're going to do in the new year, 5784? Who can tell me the first biblical mitzvah that you're going to do on the night of Rosh Hashanah? What's that? Oh, washing your hands is a mitzvah. It's not biblical, though. You're going to be praying. Which prayer is is biblical? The Shema. When you say the Shema on, on Friday night, that's your first mitzvah of the year. So make it a good Shema. 
Also make it a good mincha, because it's your last prayer service of the year. Okay? Just pointing. Um, no, just the cantor. Maybe the rabbi. That's interesting. Barry's asking a very interesting question. Why did the custom become to wear a talit the night of Yom Kippur, but not Rosh Hashanah, but not the night or, uh, of, Yom, of Rosh Hashanah? So I, I don't. I don't know if I'm going to be able to give you a satisfactory answer because there's so many different customs when it comes to. My mother is of German descent. German Jews wear a talit right after they start boys start wearing uh, after bar mitzvah through their single years. But you come into most Ashkenazi shuls, only the married men are wearing talisim. But Sephardim do also, even when they're single. So there are a lot of different customs. I don't know, I don't want to get bogged down with that. So that's Mincha. What technically kicks off uh, Rosh Hashanah, guys? What starts it? Which prayer? The Baruch Hu, thank you very much. But since it's Shabbos, what are we going to do? Before Baruch Hu, we're probably going to say, not the whole Kabbalat Shabbat, but we're going to do one excerpt from Kabbalat Shabbat. Look on page 88. Whenever Shabbos and Yom Tov and a holiday fall out together, take a look Look at page 88. It says, when Rosh Hashanah falls on the Sabbath, an abridged Kabbalat Shabbat is recited. Why don't we just do the whole Kabbalat Shabbat? Didn't we just say that Shabbos is more important? Yeah, but we still want to have a little deference to Rosh Hashanah. We still want it to be considered Rosh Hashanah. Okay? So, so we do a little of Kabbalat Shabbat. We might sneak in the Lechad Dodi. You can do that too. Here at MG, we might do that. And then we, we begin Rosh Hashanah on page 93 with the Baruch Hu. And it's essentially a regular Marv, so I'm not going to spend any time on it. It's a regular evening service that we use to kick off the day. The only thing that's different is uh, a special verse that's said before the Shemona Esrei on page 106. Page 106. Tiku b'chodesh shofar. Blow the shofar at the moon's renewal. B'kesel yom chagenu. At the time appointed for our festive day. Kichok l'Israel hu. Mishpat l'elokei Yaakov. It is a decree for Israel. A judgment day for the God of Jacob. So, it's a day of, sh- of blowing the shofar. What does the shofar represent, guys? Crying. Mercy. Crying out. It's a prayer without words. Why do we use a ram's horn? We're supposed to use a horn from actually a ram. Why a ram? The bindings to remind God, remind ourselves of what Abraham was willing to do to take his beloved son and, and, and sacrifice him on the altar. Right, he didn't have to do that, thankfully, but we. But it's a reminder because what Abraham did was then sacrifice a ram uh, unto God, and therefore that ram is supposed to be a little of a zechut, a little of a merit. Okay, uh, like you know, remember the lengths to which we would we would go, and then we we say the half kaddish. Chazan says the half kaddish, and then we have the silent devotion, and. Um, Take a look on page 109. You're going to be saying this a few times over the holiday, on 109 in the middle. And so, O God, instill your awe upon all of your works and your dread upon all that you have created. Let all works revere you. 
all creatures prostrate themselves before you. Let them all become a single society to do your will wholeheartedly. Is this only Jews? Who's this referring to? When we speak about the universal recognition of God, sovereignty, basically we're crowning God as king on Rosh Hashanah. Who do we want to recognize, who do, who do we as the Jewish people want to recognize God as king? Everybody. Everyone. There's a lot of universal themes in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In fact, on Yom Kippur, we're going to be reading from the book of Jonah. Has anyone seen any like art? You know, Jonah and the whale. Remember that story? Jonah is this great prophet. And God sends him to this city of Nineveh to get them to repent of their sins. Now, the people of Nineveh were not Jews. So what's a nice Jewish prophet going, sticking his nose in other people's business? Well, God sent it. And of course, Jonah doesn't want to do it at first. But why are we reading that whole story on Yom Kippur? Rabbi Salvechik said, it's to remind us that we're not supposed to only be thinking about the Jewish people. Believe it or not, we are supposed to try to inspire the whole world to believe in a one and only and to live a moral and ethical life. That doesn't mean our job is to get our non-Jewish neighbors and friends to keep kosher, to observe the Sabbath, Those are Jewish things for us to do to live a certain life. But ultimately, we're living that life to be connected to Hashem ourselves and to be a model for the rest of humanity. So there are a lot of references in the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. And here's one. 109 in the middle. And so too, Hashem, our God, instill your awe upon all of your works and your dread. Dread doesn't mean like, ah, but like people look at God as an awesome being. That's why you can make as a Jew what's called a Kiddush Hashem with your life, with your actions, and you can, God forbid, do just the opposite. What's, what's it, what does it mean to make a Kiddush Hashem? You ever hear that expression? Kiddush is what you do on Friday night. What does it mean to make a Kiddush Hashem? It's kind of used colloquially. like yeah. What's that? You're bringing good name to God. How do you give God a good name? How does a Jew doing a mitzvah give God a good name? Because we represent. Do we still represent? Oh yeah. It's one of the most amazing things in the world that no matter how assimilated we become, our non-Jewish neighbors always remind us that we still represent. I'm not saying it's always coming from a good place when they do and say this, but we represent. Which is why one of the main prayers that we keep saying is something from Moses. Moshe was the best defense attorney. Because God wanted to wipe us out a lot of times and he saved, he saved us. Sin of the golden calf, the sin of the spies. What is Moshe's best argument? God, what will the nation say? You brought this people out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness? What are they going to say? The nations of the world associate the Jewish people with God. What happens when something bad happens to the Jews? What happens to God? What did people say about God during the Holocaust? They, they said one of two things. Now, hopefully they said the third, but not everybody did. Either God doesn't care, he's not a benevolent God, or he's, omnip- he's, he's uh, impotent. He's not a powerful God. Because if he's benevolent, he would have stopped the Nazis from doing what they were doing. Now, we know there's a third alternative, which is we don't know. We believe God's benevolent. We be- believe he's all-powerful. But for whatever reason... Sometimes he's silent. 
and hides his face. Sometimes the reason it may not be apparent until the future, though. So That's my understanding. But no matter what, it always reflects on God, what happens to us. It always does. So we're praying to Hashem that, and really God needs us in this sense, which is kind of interesting. How does Hashem need us? Because Moshe always said to Hashem, Laman Shemecha. It's in the, it's in the uh, help, the Avinu Malkinu that we're not saying on Shabbos. It's in the Avinu Malkinu. We say, Hashem, save us for your sake. That is such a patronizing prayer. You know, it's like coming over, Adam, giving me a million dollars, the best thing you can do for yourself. It was like, Hashem, save me for your sake. How does saving me help Hashem? king needs subjects. Well, the king we needs subjects. We believe in Hashem. People associated us with Hashem. So the better things that happen to us, the better look God looks. And we're supposed to be representing again. And there is this relationship. What does it matter how it looks? Yeah, good question. The reason it matters is, I guess on some divine level, who cares? But why did Hashem bring us into existence in the first place? The only reason Hashem willed humanity into existence, we believe, is to be able to partake of spirituality and holiness and to bring spirituality and holiness into the physical world. See, that's the one thing we can do that God doesn't do. Because God is an all-spiritual being. So He purposely creates a physical being, gives us a soul, and drops us into this physical place called earth or the world. And to the degree that we create a spiritual kingdom for God here is the degree that God sort of needs us. So, not, it, yeah. Not a, like, don't we, like, not create anything? Not, isn't, like, all but we do God kind of thing? Yeah, but because you and I still have free will over our own actions and our own behavior, we get to choose whether or not we want to manifest God in the physical world. When you do a mitzvah, when you study some Torah, when you refrain from speaking ill of your neighbor, when you do the right thing, you're, you're expressing spirituality and holiness in an otherwise physical world. Something that didn't even exist before God created the world and, and humanity. So it doesn't matter what people think of God. It should bother us that people say, oh, who the heck cares? What does it matter what this schnook believes or doesn't believe? It does matter. Because the whole point of God bringing you into existence, we believe, was for you to have a relationship with Hashem. Well, that's not going to go very well if you don't even believe in Him. So that, and that's part of our job. If you choose to accept this mission. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. So this is a very fundamental stuff we're talking about. And that's what the prayer book brings out. All of this, these, these very, you know, like simple lines, may the dread of humanity fall upon you. Like, what does that mean? Why is that important? That's our job, is to get hum- humanity. By the way, Maimonides says that, that through Christianity and Islam, even though Maimonides had a big problem with Christianity and Islam, for obvious reasons, still felt that, I don't think we need this anymore, still felt that Judaism inspired those faiths. Right? There would be no Christianity or Islam if it wasn't for Judaism. And because of Christianity and Islam, they've greatly popularized certain basic ideas that are true as far as we're concerned. Now, they've also popularized certain ideas that we believe are false. But 
there's a lot out there. And Maimonides said that, you know, when the Messiah is one day going to come, people will already be familiar with these things because Christianity and Islam exist. So he had like a very kind of positive spin on it. Anyway, let's do a little more. Um, Take a look at the next page, on page 111. Uh, I'm just going to do a few more lines here. Um, Then you, Hashem, will reign alone over all your works. Look at 111 in the middle. And then you, Hashem, will reign alone over all your works on Mount Zion, resting place of your glory, and in Jerusalem, your holy city. Right? This is all about God. What? God being the king and the sovereign of the universe. Turn the page to 112 on the bottom. But then he chose the Jewish people, didn't he? Right? This is what we've been discussing. You have chosen us. Last paragraph on 112. You have chosen us from all peoples. You loved us. And you found favor in us. You exalted us above all the other tongues and you sanctified us with your commandments. So we are acknowledging that every human being has a role in this world, but the Jewish people are supposed to be Hashem's messengers. You chose us for a certain specific purpose and mission. And look at 113 on top. And you drew us close, our king, to your service and proclaimed your great and holy name upon us. Right? And if you keep going and look at 115, skip the gray. That You would say that on Saturday night, by the way. So on actually the second night of the holiday, you'll be saying that gray, but let's skip it. Um, uh, that is actually, uh, before I go on, that's actually the Havdalah. We do a Havdalah, but the Havdalah on, on Saturday night is done within the prayer. And that great paragraph is actually the Havdalah. All right? It takes us from Shabbat, which is the first day of Rosh Hashanah, to the second. And look at 115. And then we say, And Hashem, you gave us with love this day of remembrance, the day of sounding the shofar. A holy time to get together, a convocation is a, pl- a time together, a memorial from the exodus from Egypt. And these are just basic, simple themes to get us into thinking about who we are, what's our purpose, what's our role in this world. Mm-hmm. Guys, that's the purpose of Rosh Hashanah. It's very simple. We don't start getting into, I did this wrong, why am I drawn to speaking? That's interesting stuff. I'm going to talk about that next week. Next Wednesday night, we're going to do a, a Yom Kippur workshop. And we're going to start talking about the Yalchets, and I did this, and I shouldn't have done that, and why do we sin, and how do we atone. We're not dealing with that on Rosh Hashanah. We've got to set up the system first. Okay, so that is Mariv, basically. That's the evening service. You finish the sound devotion, and to yourself, there's no repetition of the sound devotion at night. We'll say the Aleinu. Um, and then on 141, I always make a little cute joke. Yeah. Okay, so, good. The leaders of the Great Assembly, who lived during the end part of the Second Temple era, so they're about 2,200 years, 21, 2,200 years old, uh, who were the leaders of the Great Assembly? They basically took over for the Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Court. There were 120 members. Uh, just to give you, amongst them were great sages, Kabbalists, prophets. Mordechai the Jew, in the Purim story, was a member of the Great Assembly. Super high-level individuals. They were not God. We don't believe that they were God. We believe people are people. Okay? But some of them had a prophetic, you know, connection with God. So we do take their prayers quite seriously. So they're very old. And there are some other prayers that found their way into the liturgy and into the prayer book later in Jewish history. But the actual bones and structure of the prayer service 
was composed by the leaders of the Great Assembly, the Anshik Nesed Hagdola. Um, it's a very, very important question. Also, it's tricky. Hebrew versus English. How much of your praying should you do in Hebrew versus how much of your praying should you do in English? So the reason we bought these transliterated prayers prayer book is so that if your Hebrew is rusty, you could still sing along. I'm not a huge fan of learning how to pray from the transliterated. It's not great. But it helps people in the moment just kind of sing along. Um, so you got to find your own balance. Because if you try to kill yourself too much with the Hebrew, you might lose yourself. If you do too much of the English, in my opinion, I think you lose a little of the flavor that the Hebrew, only the Hebrew can capture. And not just the flavor, but the actual spiritual connection. The Talmud says that when you pray in Hebrew, you don't need an angel to take the prayers onto Hashem. The prayers go a little more directly. The Hebrew itself, why is Hebrew so important? Hebrew itself, we believe, is the language that God used to create the world. The Hebrew alphabet are not simply letters, but they are vessels through which energy was able to be transmitted and the world was created actually through the reconfiguration of the Hebrew letters. Why? So how did actually God create the world? Speech. But speech gets articulated then and put in the form of letters. And there are ten utterances that God used from the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet that were put together. And there's a lot of Kabbalah on this. And when you learn that Kabbalah, you start thinking, oh, maybe I should pray a little more in the Hebrew. There's, some, there's something there that I can't quite capture in an English translation. But if you go to the other extreme and your Hebrew isn't so great and you try to break your teeth on the Hebrew all day, I think you're going to be a little frustrated. And God understands all languages, so you can pray in the English. Don't feel guilty about it. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just trying to pump up the power of Hebrew. Okay? So you want to find your yin and your, your yang on the Hebrew English. Um, what's that? So that's why I think, I think it's okay sometimes not to understand what you're saying and just to sort of get into it. You know? But I think it's hard to do that for too long. So I think you try to do a combination. Yeah. Also, here's the problem if you just do English all the time. Think about five, ten years from now. Do you want to still only be praying in English? So if you really want to sort of like progress a little and get better at the Hebrew, because I will tell you the more I learn and the more I study Hebrew and Kabbalah, the more I realize how inadequate the English language is at capturing some of the ideas. Um, but, again, you can't go to the other extreme because then you'll just lose... And I do some of the prayers in English myself because some of this is very hard Hebrew poetry. It's not easy. Like the Slichot, I do some of them in English. They're very, very hard. So you do the best you can. You do the best you can. Yeah, Adam. Why isn't it we refer to the day as Yom HaZikaron, the day oh. of remembrances, which I guess is one part of the, the Amidah uh, during the daytime, but... Like, we colloquially call it, like, the Day of Judgment, but is judgment mentioned in here at all? Judgment's hardly mentioned anywhere. I want to just do two prayers with you before we finish tonight, but I'm going to answer your question. 
Wait, what was the first thing you were asking? We refer to the day as the day of remembrance. You have no right. So, it's, it's, it's called, because the Torah says, Zichron Trua. It, the it's shofar. the remembrance of Trua. What are the three sounds of the shofar? Uh, Tkia. Let me hear you do it. What does it sound like? Come on, Henry. That's a Tkia. It's going to do. What's a Shvarim? Pretty good, no? Uh, what about uh, Trua? It's like a staccato. They're supposed to represent three different types of cries, okay? But it's also supposed to cause us to reflect on certain ideas, to remember certain ideas. Zichron trua. You hear the sound, you start thinking about certain things. What should you think about when you hear the, the sounds of the chauffeur? Like what's going through your mind? I don't know. Forget about what you should think about. What do you think about when you hear the chauffeur? Which one? Just like whenever anything. <laughs> 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 that's not a good heartbeat. No. That's more like you flatlined. But what about do? Oh, maybe the staccato. You got a heart. You got a fast heart. But what is the first thing you when you first hear the first sound of the chauffeur on Rosh Hashanah? What? What? Do you, yeah. What is that? It's a wake up. That's what the Rambam says. Maimonides says. It's a wake-up call. It's supposed to... what? Because it's like a weird... It's like a shrill. It's not a pleasant sound. You know, um, it's supposed to kind of shake you out of your slumber a little. Sleeping, waking up. Dude, there's a God. He created you. It's Rosh Hashanah. Let, let, we got to rem- remember why we're here. You know? And once we get all that down, fine. So... So that we're going to come back though, because one of the three themes of the Musaf right. Shemona Esrei is the Chrona. So I'm going to get to that. Okay, it's getting late. So um, now let's 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 start in the morning. You wake up on Rosh Hashanah. What's <coughs> the first thing you want to make sure to do on Rosh Hashanah morning? Get up earlier. <laughs> yeah. We're starting services a half an hour early. There's more praying. There's more praying to do. So get up a little earlier. Come to synagogue, and the structure of the prayer service is always the same all year. What's the first thing we do in every prayer service in every morning? What's it called? The morning blessings. What's the theme of the morning blessings? Gratitude. Thanking God for those things in life we may take for granted. Okay, that's no, that's not different. So I'm not going to dwell on that because that's we do that every day of the year. We do it on Shabbos. It's not unique to Rosh Hashanah. Psalms of praise. Next section. It's another thing we always do to rid ourselves of distracting thoughts. We say all these psalms from the book of Tehillim. Okay? Now we finally get to some Rosh Hashanah prayers. Follow with me again to the Baruchu. Um, actually, let me show you something quick. On page 336, the Chazan makes his entrance, his dramatic entrance, on Saturday and Sunday morning in synagogue, by calling out one word. It's on the top of the page. The Chazan says, HaMelech. What's Melech? The king. Who's the king? Talking about Hashem. HaMelech. HaMelech. 
it's a story of a great Hasidic master. When he heard this, he started shivering. He heard Hamelech. And he thought about that story that's in the Talmud. Who said Hamelech? We always think about a human king, an earthly king. Before the destruction of not the first but the second temple. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was the representative of the Jewish community to the Roman court. And there was a big fight between the Jews how to deal with the Romans. And finally he got to see Vespasian. Vespasian, the great Roman leader. And he called him a king. And Vespasian said, if I'm a king, I should kill, you should be killed for two reasons for calling me a king. Number one, I'm not a king. I'm only number two. I'm not the Caesar. And number two, if I was the king, what took you so long to come and see me? And then, of course, Rabbi Yochum and Zakeh gave him this whole thing. And, but that was like a, an exchange between the rabbi and an earthly king of how fearful we would be before a king, how much respect and awe we would show if you ever got to meet the king of England, right? The new king of England. <clears throat> now this is the king and we are crowning him. He sits on his throne. And that's what's a little different at the end of the service. And then we go into Shochinad. It's a special tune that we use in honor of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And finally, on 340, we have the Baruch We begin the um, prayers. These are the same, very similar structure to regular Shacharis. Blessings before the Shema. Blessings after the Shema. We get to the Sound of Ocean on 369. And... Um, they're again all about kingship all about crowning God as king uh, we say it's similar to the sound devotion we did the night before by the way if you want to know if there's repetition in praying there's a ton of repetition in praying why? the silent devotion that we say in the morning is only, almost looks, sounds exactly like the one the night before because what's the purpose of prayer guys? purpose of prayer is not to come and learn something new necessarily. That's why you came here tonight, and I hope you're not disappointed. That's why you come to a class. You want to learn something new and different. Why do you come to synagogue? Synagogue just reminds you of stuff you know already, but you may not be living up to. That's why when you sing a song, praying is like singing a song. We do a lot of singing and praying. How many times do we keep repeating? You know, she loves you, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm singing. She loves you, yeah. How many times do you have to say the same thing? Because the point is not to learn something new. The point is to express your feelings and to just do it again and again. If anyone has ever meditated, what do you do when you meditate? You just repeat the same mantra repeatedly to get into a certain zone. That's what you're doing. It's not about obtaining new information. It's about getting into a spiritual zone. And you say the same thing over, the Shema. Same every day. And people always ask me, Rabbi, it's just so repetitious. And I say, precisely. Exactly. It needs to be repetitious if it's going to hit home. Because the goal of synagogue and the goal of prayer, and Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur included, is not to engage the mind, but the heart. Now, you can learn something, and hopefully during the Rabbi's talk, you'll learn something new. And I literally spent the last two, three weeks writing up some juicy stuff. And if you're not here, I'll send it to you if you like. Um, you know, I work really, really hard on my talks. 
But the prayer is really what we're there for. And, I, and don't beat yourself up if you don't love it so much. I struggle with prayer too. I don't love praying all the time. I should pick that up for <laughs> I don't, I don't. But when I get into it, I mean, it's hard. It's hard. It's a discipline and it puts you in touch with your feelings and I'm not always feeling such great. We were like, you know, we were at the office all day today. It was like, what was today at the office like? It was miserable. It was the worst day. It's such a, it's before Rosh Hashanah. We're like nuts. Like four people doing the job of ten and everybody's yelling and bumping into each other and it's like, ah. Okay, so you're not feeling good and it's like an emotional thing and that's what praying is about. So, don't worry about, you know, rep, 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 repeating. Now, there's certain special inserts in the Sounds of Ocean. Take a look on 388. Very important to note. Page 388. <speaking in Hebrew> All rabbis are frustrated, Chazanim, by the way. Everybody have a 388. It means remember us for life. O king, so it's a regular sound devotion that you would see during the week, the first part anyway. And then we stick in, remember us for life, God, who desires life, inscribe us in the book of life. Right? Um, for your sake, O living God, O helper, O king, helper, savior, and shield, blessed are you, Hashem, shield of Abraham. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing now. This is the sound devotion. Um... And what I would like to do is two other prayers. Oh, first of all, what do we read from the Torah? So that's Shacharis. Okay, and I know I didn't hit everything in Shacharis. But that's basically the morning prayers. It follows the same sequence as any prayer service during the week or on Shabbat. Morning blessings, Psalms of praise, Shema and the surrounding blessings. Then you've got the Sound Devotion, which gets tweaked a little for the high holidays. And then you read the Torah. What do we read? From on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, uh, anybody know? Sent, you can cheat if you want. Uh, it's the story of who and who. It's a story that, that's actually in the prophets. Um, I think we read that in the. No, we don't read Joshua in the prophets. Sorry, different holiday. The close. Um, so we read about the story of Sarah and Hagar. Sarah's inability to have a child, and then she gives birth. Why do we read that in Rosh Hashanah? Hey, everybody, got plenty of Isaac. What about that itself? What about Sarah and her the struggle to have life, the struggle to bring children into this world? So it says that the rabbis teach that Sarah, all of the matriarchs, struggled terribly to have children. They were all initially infertile, unable to bear children. And they all went through a lot of turmoil and a lot of praying. And the day that Sarah was remembered favorably, that it was decreed in the heavens that she would have a son, that have a child, was Rosh Hashanah. So we read this as a way of kind of like, oh, remember that Hashem? You gave her what she wanted. You know, that's... That's one explanation. There are many explanations why we read from this situation. Uh, also, about the whole story with Hagar and Yishmael, family situation. Um, there was strife and conflict within the home of Abraham because he was initially unable to have children. So this was not an uncommon thing to do. 
uh, Abraham had a, had a child with Hagar, who was their handmaid, and that boy's name was Yishmael. He got out of hand, created a very difficult situation for Yitzchak. Sarah wanted him out of the house. Abraham didn't want that. God got involved and said, Shema Bikola, listen to her. And so Abraham had to basically kick his own flesh and blood out of his own home, which was very, very difficult. And there are a lot of reasons why we would read about that kind of story um, on Rosh Hashanah. Talk about family and conflicts and how we deal with family conflicts in our lives. Um, and then that's the first day. The second day, what do we read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah? The binding of Yitzchak. Why do we read that on Rosh Hashanah? Well, the ending is good. We have the ram's horn. The ending is good. We got the ram's horn we talked about before. He didn't have to take his beloved Isaac. He took the ram instead. And then we blow the shofar from the ram. By the way, just another allusion to blowing the shofar. Such a weird thing. God commands us to take a ram and then blow into it. We used to have a kids program here at MJE and we brought Chabad in to do like chauffeur making with the kids. Uh, has anyone ever made a chauffeur? Well, before all that, <laughs> that's the fun part. You got to hollow it out. It stinks, man. The whole, this room, it was in this room. I could not get the smell out of this room for like six months. It's a real ham's... hollow it out. It's curved. What are your ram's I mean, they, they have oh, ram's horns. Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I can't, no, it's not hollow. No, you have to hollow it out. You have to hollow it out. Right. Well, no, but that, that's because they wanted the kids to feel like they were making their own ram's horns. All the parents stuck up their stuck up their families' homes for the next couple of months. Wait, why am I sharing this? Oh. <laughs> So think about it. What is the idea of blowing your own breath into something else and producing the sound? Why is that something we'd want to do? What does that remind you of a little? It's an allusion to the fact that it's the anniversary of the creation of man and how we believe that God breathed. How did we come into existence? The Torah says, God took a lifeless matter and breathed into it a soul. That's how you and I came into existence. So what does God do? What is Rosh Hashanah? I forgot to mention, this is a major theme. I should have said this earlier. Rosh Hashanah is also the birthday of who? Of the world or man? Man. Man. Day six. Day six of creation is Rosh Hashanah. The day that Adam and Eve came into existence. So think about that for a minute. We come into existence by God blowing his breath, so to speak, into a vessel creating people. We are then told to commemorate the creation. By the way, this is Rav Yonasan Aish, I can never pronounce his name, it's in my book. I did this for my Parsha YouTube. You'll see it, I pronounced the name right there. It took me like three takes. Rav Yonasan Aish, big rabbi in... Um, Anyway, this is his idea, that we're basically mimicking God. We're, we're mimicking God. E-Y-B-E-S-C-H-U-T-Z. That's why it's hard to pronounce. Rabbi Jonathan Ibishitz from the 18th century. And we're basically 
sounding the shofar, we begin the year by mimicking God's most enduring and creative act. The shofar is the ultimate reminder of what? Our ability to create. And what are we doing with our hands, our breath, our eyes, our nose, our lips? We, have, we were given this beautiful body. We were given this incredible mind. What are we doing with our bodies, with our minds? Are we using it to create? Hashem use, you know, created all of this. So that's something to think about also when you hear the shofar being blown. It's a nice idea. All right, one last thing I want to share. Um, and that is Unisana Tokef. Take a look on 687. This is a key, key prayer. This is probably the most um, stirring prayer of the day. And there's a very difficult story behind this of Unusana Tokev. Uh, based on a true story uh, of a terrible bishop of Mainz. Mainz was one of the ancient Jewish communities along the Rhineland. Spire, Mainz, and Worms, Germany. Rashi studied in Worms, Germany. He was from France originally. But the Bishop of Mainz gave this great rabbi, Rav Amnon, three days to decide whether he would convert to Christianity or be killed. And Rav Amnon of Mainz chose death, and he was tortured terribly, and he was killed. And at some period of time afterwards, he appeared in a dream to another great rabbinic scholar, Rav Meshulam, Rav Kolonius ben Meshulam, who composed this prayer based on this dream that he had from Rav Amnon of Mainz. Of, um, and it was basically a prayer asking Hashem for forgiveness that it took him three days to decide whether he should stay Jewish or allow himself to be killed, that he should have immediately said that I'll allow myself, my life to be taken. It's a very uh, stirring and, bless you, an intense prayer. Um, What page is it on? It's on, take a look on 687. Just say with me in the English. Let us now relate the power of this day. By the way, take a look at the bottom. I'm finishing up with this. It says, Rav Amnon spent three days in solitude, fasting and praying to be forgiven for his sin, did not return to the bishop. Finally, the bishop had been brought and demanded an answer. Uh, okay, it's, it's actually a little gory. You can read this on your own. You can take this home. Take a picture of it if you want to read this later. It's a very, very difficult story, but I think it's just important. It, when people know the story behind the prayer and how this prayer became a prayer, it, it, it helps, you know, the intensity makes a little more sense. So we say, let us now relate the power of this prayer's holiness. It's awesome and frightening. On it, your kingship will be exalted. Your throne will be firm with kindness. You will sit upon it in truth. Now, there's a, a certain contrast in this prayer. On one hand, it talks about din, that God has judgment. On the other hand, it talks about kindness. Your throne will be firm with kindness. Yes, God judges us, but why does God judge us? Is being judged an expression of strictness, of, of um, what's the opposite of compassion? Of lack of compassion or compassion? I ask you. Being judged is what? 
how is it an expression of kindness at the end of the day? Just think of parent. Care enough. Right, you care enough. What, what is a bad parent? Do we, we don't consider it now. If a parent, God forbid, abuses, that's bad. But a bad parent is usually a, a parent that neglects or ignores. A parent that pays attention and that evaluates and that holds their son or daughter to a higher standard is a parent that cares about the child and believes in the child. If you don't believe in your child and you think he's nothing, then you don't hold him to a standard. And you say, do whatever you want to do. I remember that when I used to really upset my mother, like, at something, she'd like, oh, you fight it out, you do whatever you want to do. You know, like, she was aggravated. She'd like, want to deal with us. That's an expression of giving up on your child. So when we say that God judges us with kindness, what kind of judgment could be kindness? Because the judgment is coming from a place of kindness. We don't have to have a day of judgment or Shani and Kippur. Just do whatever you want. I don't care. Live however you want. But a parent gives par- parameters and boundaries and rules. Because the parent knows that if you keep letting the kid fill his stomach with sugar, it's going to get sick. And if you let the kid do whatever he wants, and Hashem knows the same thing about us. So one of the things that gets contrasted in this beautiful prayer, very, very holy prayer, is kindness and din. Din is judgment. Also, there's a very intense, alarming sound. Read with me. It is true that you are alone are the one who judges, proves, knows, bears witness, writes and seals, who remembers all that was forgotten. You will open the book of Chronicles, it will read itself, and everyone's signature is in it. So this is a little intense. Remember I talked about the books that are open? So here the prayer says that, Hashem, you've got the books and everybody's signature is in the book. Now, you could be freaked out by that and go, oh my God. Or you could be like, Hashem cares about me. I'm in his book. I matter. And that's really the attitude we should be taking. The great shofar will be sounded and a still thin sound will be heard. Now, what is that? The great shofar will be sounded and a still thin sound will be heard. Which is it? Is Judaism about the big shofar blast? Tkia, wake up! Or is it about a still thin sound? It's both. Right? Shofar wakes us up, but it's balanced out by a phrase from the prophet, Kol Demama Daka. It's from Elisha the prophet, that God's voice could also be experienced in silence. And lastly, there's a contrast between the community and the individual. We'll see that in a minute. The great shofar will be sounded and a still thin sound will be heard. Angels will hasten. A trembling and terror will seize them. And they will all say, Behold, it's the day of judgment to muster the heavenly host for judgment. For they cannot be vindicated in your eyes in judgment. All mankind... By the way, this is probably one of the only references I told you before at the outset of this class. Very little reference to judgment. Here it is. Okay? All mankind will pass before you like members of the flock. Now that's weird. What does that mean, all mankind will pass before you like members of the flock? Like everyone is just like this big macro. We're just sheep part of a big flock. But what's the next line? Like a shepherd inspecting his flock, making sheep pass under his staff, so shall you cause to count, to pass, count, calculate, and consider the soul of all the living thing. This is based on a passage from the Talmud that says, now how does God look at us on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Does he look at us in a klal, in a group, or does he look at us individually? Now I don't know about you, I'd like to be looked upon as a group. I like to kind of hide in the crowd, if you will. You know, I used to play dodgeball with my friends when I was little. 
And one of my friends would get the ball, I would like cower to a bunch of other people. You know, I'll just be with them. Right? So which is it? So there are three contrasts in this prayer. The first one I mentioned was the shofar waking us up. Oh, that's the second one. The first one is chesed and din, kindness and judgment. That judgment is coming from a place of love and kindness. The second idea is this intense, alarming sound like the shofar with the soft, thin sound. Silence. You can find God in both. And then here's the last one, the community versus the individual. How are we evaluated? How are we looked at? So on one hand, we're just part of a big flock. On the other hand, what does the shepherd do when he wants to count his sheep? I'm sure you all know this from your farming. What do you do? You can't do that because the sheep are moving all over the place. I was on a farm this summer. I will go. And you see all these sheep. You count one, it's moving, you can't. What do they do? They have a little thing. It's in the Talmud, actually. It's a little gate thing, and it's only wide enough for one sheep to get through at a time. And that's how the farmer counts the sheep. The rabbis teach, that's the way we're looked at on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. How do we appear before God? Do we appear before Hashem as individuals or as a community? And the answer is both. And that's actually wonderful because you want a little of both. Because you want to be evaluated for your own life and what we do, what we deserve, what we are worthy of, the wonderful things we've done individually. But we also want a little community to hide behind. Why is it so important to come to synagogue in Rosh Hashanah and Kippur? Why are all the prayers said in plural? And why do we make such a big deal? You know, some people are a little cynical. You know, a lot of Jews who don't maybe come every Shabbat will come on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And people get a little cynical about that. But I heard from one of the great rabbis at Yeshiva University, you shouldn't get cynical. Because you know what it shows? It shows that that Jewish person counts themselves as part of the community. And if you count yourself as part of the community, then you can obtain communal forgiveness. Not individual forgiveness. Individual forgiveness, we'll get to that next week. There's no way around that. You can't hide behind anyone else. That's just between you and God. Between me and God. It's all based on what I do, what I don't do. But what's communal forgiveness? Just showing up, basically. Now, why is it so important? And why is it all I have to do is show up? And why do I need communal forgiveness at all? Rav Salvechik has an incredible essay on this. And he says there's two types of kapara, two types of atonement operating on Yom Kippur. Kapara sayachid versus kapara sitzibor. Individual communal. um, And I'm going to speak about this a little more next week. But who is the deal made with? When God made a deal that He would keep us alive if we kept His Torah, and if we kept being His people, manifesting His name in the world, that who, who did He make that deal with? He made it with certain individuals on behalf of the community. He didn't make that with Mark or Henry. He made that with the Kalal. And that's why it's very important. The Kalal means the community that you're praying in a synagogue. Now, during COVID, when people couldn't pray in synagogues, I didn't. I left this idea out because I didn't want to make people feel bad that we were missing a whole community thing. You could still pray alone. And there is an individual component to our relationship with Hashem, and then there is a relationship we have with God that's very communal, that's wrapped up in each other as well. And that's a very, very important thing, and it's all reflected in this one very beautiful prayer. And at the end of it, 
on 691 on top, everybody yells out together, Utashuva, Utafila, Utsidaka, that these are the three things that can tear up a bad decree. Shuva is repentance. We're going to speak a lot more about that next week. Repentance really means saying, I'm sorry. And that could be to your fellow human being, and it could be to God. Prayer is what we've been talking about all night. And tzedakah is the last thing I'll end with. Important to give some charity at this time of year. This is not a convenient ploy to raise money for MGE, although we could definitely use your help. Um, but it is a good time to give some charity. Find out who really needs something. Um, there are great causes out there. And we're supposed to really give. Uh, my rabbi, a blessed member, used to say when he would conduct appeals in our shul, he says, if you give and it doesn't hurt a, a little, you're probably not giving enough. He says, it should affect you a little. Like any mitzvah you do, if it's too simple and it's too easy, that's one of my talks that I'm giving on Rosh Hashanah, it's probably not making such a difference. It's like the gym. You know? You don't break a sweat in the gym and you had a very nice, pleasant experience, but not really doing what you set out to do. So, Shuvat Tzfilin Staka, it says, Mavir Nedrog Zera. They remove the evil of the decree. There are a lot of explanations for that phrase. Some say, it's not that it could change the decree, but sometimes we have things that happen in life. And what's our attitude when those things happen? When tragedy, God forbid, strikes. If, we, if we're involved in tshuva and tefillah and staka, we have a relationship with God and we're helping other people going through difficult situations, we're giving charity to the poor, we're doing tshuva, we're coming back to our better selves, then that's going to help us deal with a bad decree. It's going to take a little of the evil out of the decree. Because what's the lashon? The language is ma'virinet roah ha to take a little of the evil from the gezera. It doesn't say to rid the gezera of evil, it's to remove a little, bless you, Remove a little of the evil from the Gezeira. Okay. The one thing I didn't get to tonight is the longest Shemona Esrei in all year round is, the longest sound devotion all year round is Musaf of Rosh Hashanah. And if you have some time to prepare for it, there are three themes, Malchiot, Zechronot, and Shofrot. Kingship, Remembrances, and Shofar Blasts. Those are the three things. Kingship, remembrances, and, th- and here's a way of remembering it. Of Yosef Albo, great medieval Jewish philosopher, argued with Maimonides. Maimonides says there were 13 principles of faith every Jew must believe in. Of Albo said there were only three. God, reward and punishment, Torah. Those are the three things. Everything else he says flows from there. And if you look at the three themes of the Musaf, silent devotion, the Amidah, which is the longest of the whole year. Malchiat is kingship, that's belief in God. It's got ten verses from the Torah there that speak about different aspects of God's existence and his kingship. We've been talking about that a lot. That's a major theme in the liturgy. Zichronus is that God remembers. That's reward and punishment. Nothing we do in this life goes, which is good. That means that what we do in life matters. Because people get cynical. What does it matter? Everything matters. If you don't believe in God and you don't believe in all these things, it's hard to stay positive because it's just like whatever. But if everything matters and God remembers, 
Now that could also freak you out too. I don't want God to remember that. That's a good thing he should remember. That, let him forget. Now, but we emphasize in that section that God remembers us for the good. That's all we read from the book of Abraham and Sarah to have a child. And what's the last section? Malchiot, Zechronos, remembrances, that God remembers everything. Shofrot. What we say was the third theme, the Torah. The shofar was blown as the Torah was given at Sinai. When God gave the Jewish people the Torah at Harsinai, there was a shofar. You could hear the sounds of the shofar. And what that section of the prayers is doing, essentially, is reminding us of the giving of the Torah at Harsinai. Because if you can walk around with these three themes in your life, that there's a God, that God is the King, B, He cares about what we do, He remembers, He rewards, He punishes, three, so that, the first one is Malchios, kingship. No, kingship is one. Remembrance is two. Shofar blasts is three. But I'm trying to line up those three with Rav Yosef Albo's three principles of Judaism. Principle one is God. That lines up with kingship. Malchios, number one. Number two is remembrances. That God remembers everything. That lines up with reward and punishment. And just because we don't see the good getting rewarded or the bad being punished doesn't mean it ain't happening. We just don't see it all. There's another world, we believe. And then number three, the third and last section, Shofrot, the Shofar blasts, that should trigger off in your mind the giving of the Torah at Harsinai. Because the Shofar was being sounded when the Torah was given at Harsinai. I know it just rammed a lot of information. Uh, I hope it wasn't too much. Um, that it gave you a little sense of some of the themes and ideas. Did you get the three? Did that make sense? Okay, I, don't, I see you were trying to take Yeah, we're, we're all taking You got it? Okay, good. Any questions or comments? You guys have been very quiet here. Any questions, comments? Yes? Barry? Reward and punishment and what we do no, we very much believe in free will, that we can make choices, and that we those choices come with consequences, positive and negative. That what? Well, that would be... I mean, Maimonides would vehemently disagree with that. Most rabbis, I think, would. That we're just sort of pre-programmed to behave in a certain kind of way. I mean, that rubs up against so much of what Judaism believes in. Yeah, the circumstances we may not have control over, but the way we behave and act and respond to those circumstances. That was also Viktor Frankl's. I'm working on a sermon for Yom Kippur. That was, you read Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl, it's a very important work. Um, that's a major theme in his teachings, is that even in the worst of moments, that we can still choose to live the way we want. I mean, Barry, what would be the point of Rosh Hashanah Kippur if we had no choice? What are we being evaluated on, the way we were pre-programmed? If we were hardwired... I mean, and, and that's, by the way, this is a very important discussion because, you know, the more we find biological um, sources for our behavior, 
the more we're going to sort of relinquish our responsibility. Because we'll say, well, that's just the way God made me. I have a chemical this and a chemical for that. Now, it could be a combination of things. There are people who are born with more aggressive tendencies than others. And that just might be chemical. But does that mean we are fully abdicated of any, you know, negative behavior that we take based on those? No. Last time I checked, the courts still, you know, put people in jail if they, if, if for assault and battery, even though the guy's a hothead. Um, I told you that story that happened years ago of the hockey coach. You know that story of, um, it was on a law and order for Thump. Yeah, yeah. You know that one? It was, um... He beat the other dad up. I think one guy was hitting more playing time. One of the kids... His kid was uh, on the hockey team, and there was scouts from, from the colleges. And the coach pulled out the kid for some reason. The father went ballistic. It's a true story, by the way. Oh. I looked it up. It's a true story. And he uh, he didn't mean to kill the coach, but he... Yeah, they found him in the was, parking garage, I think. Right? He, well, it was, he was convicted, ultimately, of manslaughter. Yeah. But the point for this is that the defense tried to argue that given the stakes of this hockey game and what a hothead and how he had predilections towards violence, the person who, you know, who, who killed the other man, the father of the kid, should not be you know, convicted of this, of this alleged crime because you know, given all the circumstances. Now, the jury didn't buy it. The jury didn't buy it because at the end of the day we still have free will. You know? So, that's a very fundamental theme. It is. What do we wish each other in Rosh Hashanah? Yeah, that's the easy way. Uh, you could actually take a picture of it. Maybe you want to practice it. It's in here. It's on 141. You could just say Shana Tova. Um, by the way, just a little trick before you go. The word Shana doesn't just mean year. It's also from the word Shinui, which means change. But you're really blessing other people is that they, they have a year of growth. And something changes this year for the better. You have a different year. Um, so you could also say Shana Tava, or if you want to be fancy, if you're speaking to another person who happens to be male, you say Lashana Tova Tikatev Vetechatev. It's really fancy. For a good year, you should be inscribed and sealed. Now, when do you get inscribed? Rosh Hashanah. When is the sealing? Yom Kippur. Um, and then there's a female tense of it. To a woman, you would say, L'shanah tovah tikatevi v'techatemi. You know that in the Hebrew language, the male and the female, the tenses change. If you're speaking to a group of men or a group of women, you can just see that on your own. Or you can just wish him a good year. Um, Shana Tova. Um, I wish you all a sweet and happy, healthy. All of your prayers should come true. And I hope that our discussion tonight helps it just a bit to um, frame the prayers a little, to give you some of the themes to think about when you're in synagogue for all those hours. If you're with us here, you'll hear them again. You'll hear some of that again. But if you're not, you know... Um, um, should be good, sweet, happy, healthy for you and your families. Good things. Shanat Tavah, guys. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, there's extra food in the back, and we're going to be meeting here again next Wednesday night.
for the last of this series on Yom Kippur, and we'll get into some more nitty-gritties for Yom Kippur that we didn't really talk about tonight. Um, have a great year, everyone. We're going to say have a good night, but have an awesome year. You know? Thank you. Uh, I'm not very good. 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 I'm not very good.